0: Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation, on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, The novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective, Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she had millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where. But that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 10 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation, by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. Chapter 35. For nearly half an hour, Emily followed Jennifer, Nate, and Danny with a handheld video camera, and Dave trailed behind with an array of sensors, taking and recording readings in the various rooms they went in and out of. Greg followed along, while Marcia stayed with Daisy in the living room watching TV. Dave got excited when they checked out the guest room where Maureen claimed she had spent much of the time between her death and the foreman's moving in. His sensors were recording something unusual. Nate wasn't convinced that the reading meant much of anything. Electromagnetic fields and background radiation were everywhere these days. After everyone else had filed out of the room, he went to the bedroom window and found what he was expecting. The electrical line for the house came in from a pole along the street and was attached just outside the window. Nate caught back up to them as they were congregating in Danny's tiny bedroom. Danny's back was to the door, but when Nate arrived, being careful to be quiet, the boy looked behind him with an amused smile. Dave tells me that you found some old photos up in the attic, Nate said. Everyone turned to look at Nate, standing in the doorway. How did you get up there? the detective asked the boy. Maureen told me how, Danny answered. She told me to put a chair under the chain hanging from the ceiling and pull it down so the stairs could slide out. Nate looked down the hall. He saw the chain that Danny was talking about. It was indeed too high for the boy to reach without something to stand on. He walked over and pulled on it. It didn't require much force. The mechanism was counterbalanced. A good tug pulled the trapdoor open and allowed the telescoping ladder to extend to the floor. Nate climbed the stairs and poked his head up in the attic. Sunlight crept in through the windows on either side of the gabled roof. He stepped up and saw that the window that was right in front of him had some tree branches pressing up against it. He walked over and looked down at the yard, where a very old oak tree stood, spreading its boughs in a wide circle that extended all the way up to the window. That's where she died, Danny said. Nate turned around and found that the rest of the party had followed him up into the attic. Here in the attic, Nate prompted. Danny shook his head. No. She went out that window and thought she could climb down the tree to get to the woods, but she didn't make it. Nate took a closer look at the tree branches and noted that someone could indeed possibly gain purchase on the thick limbs and make their way toward the massive trunk. The pictures were in that hole, Danny said. Nate bent down and saw the gap in the wallboards Danny was referencing. He pulled out a penlight from his jacket pocket and shined it in the dark space. There was something in there. He reached his hand inside and pulled out a piece of paper, covered in years of dust. It was a single sheet, folded over. On the outside was a name, Dale. He unfolded it and read the message inside. Stash the bag, heading on to the place we discussed if I can. Wish you were here, Maureen. The word wish was underlined. Nate handed the note to Jennifer. She held it up to the camera for Emily to record. Guess she never made it to wherever they discussed, Dave said. Would have been nice if she said where she stashed the bag of loot, Emily added. They all looked to Danny. Say, Danny, does Maureen remember where she left the money? Emily asked. Danny looked at the window. Not where Nate was standing, but next to him. No, she doesn't, he said simply, but kept his attention on the space by the window. Is there something else, Danny? Jennifer asked. She says there's someone she's afraid of. Is it Dale? Dave asked. She doesn't know. She can't remember, Daniel replied. He looked over at Jennifer. Can we go back now? Jennifer nodded and led the group back down the steep ladder. Dave and Emily finished packing up the gear. Jennifer did a few more magic tricks for the kids, and then Greg sent them both upstairs to change so they could go outside and play. The two kids ran up the stairs to the rooms. Nate approached Marcia, who was sitting alone on the living room sofa. She greeted him with a friendly smile. Of the two parents, she was the one who was more like Nate, more skeptical. Can I talk to you for a minute? Nate asked her. Sure. She moved over to one side so Nate could take a seat next to her. So, now that you've seen Dr. Day and her crew at work, what do you think about all this? He began. She shrugged. I don't know what to think. Danny has always been creative and imaginative. But some of this, I just don't know where it could come from. Nate nodded. How has Danny adjusted to your move? I know you guys came out here from the city. It must have been a big change for him. Has he been able to make new friends at school? He's not a very outgoing boy, Marcia told Nate. He likes to read and draw, mostly. His teachers say that he gets along well with everyone, and there haven't been any incidents of bullying. What about his relationship with his sister? Was it a big adjustment for him to go from being an only child to a big brother? Marcia shook her head. He loves it. He's very protective of her, and they actually play together quite well. If you don't mind me asking, what made you move? Nate asked. My mother, Marcia replied. Well, actually, she was the reason we had put off moving for so long. She was living in a nursing home, late-stage Alzheimer's. When she passed away, we didn't have any other reasons to stay in the city. Was Danny close to his grandmother? when he was younger, when she could still remember who he was. We didn't take the kids to visit the last year. I could barely stand to go myself, but she was my mother, and even if she didn't recognize me, I wanted her to know that someone loved her. What about the funeral? Did the kids go? Marcia nodded. The funeral home had a room set aside for the kids, but Danny was curious and wanted to look inside the coffin. I was reluctant at first, but the funeral director and our pastor assured us that it could be helpful for a kid Danny's age to know about death. Marcia looked up at Nate. Do you think that might have something to do with why he says he's seeing a ghost? I don't know. I'm just trying to get the whole picture. I guess I still fall back into interrogation mode sometimes. Occupational hazard of being a policeman for so long. So how did you end up working with Dr. Day? The shooting, he replied, referring to the incident that had come up earlier. I had to take early retirement. Teaming up with Jennifer was a business decision. Have you ever... Marcia struggled to formulate the question she wanted to ask, but Nate knew instinctively where the conversation was going. In the time I've worked with her, I have never seen anything that I couldn't explain with logic and common sense. She, of course, would argue otherwise. But from my point of view, there is always an explanation that is rooted in reality, no matter how paranormal the circumstances seem. Marcia nodded. Nate sensed that there was something bothering her, Jennifer and Greg approached them. "'I think we've got everything packed up,' she told Marcia. "'I just wanted to thank you again for allowing us to meet Danny. He's a great kid,' Marcia nodded and offered a polite smile. "'So what's next?' Greg asked. "'Well, with your permission, I'd like to bring a friend of mine over, a medium, to see if he can confirm what Danny is telling us.' "'Is that really a good idea?' Marcia asked. "'Don't you have enough?' "'We have a lot,' Jennifer confirmed. "'But this would be different.' Sam is very sensitive to spirits. If he can confirm what Danny is seeing and hearing, it would give us more definitive answers. Nate tried not to cringe at the mention of Sam's name. He was hoping he would never have to deal with that psychic Ken doll again. What do you think? Greg asked his wife. Marcia considered. We'll talk about it, she promised. I hope you'll really consider it. Regardless, like we discussed, we'll keep everything confidential. Thank you, Marcia said, relieved. Emily and Dave carried the cases containing the cameras and sensors out of the house, followed by Jennifer. Greg tagged along, talking to Dr. Day, peppering her with questions about Sam. Nate offered a parting smile to Marcia and turned to follow the rest of the team. Marcia put a hand on Nate's arm to stop him. Nate looked at her. Is there something else? he asked. My computer, she said. What about it? I don't understand how Danny could have used it to look up you and Dr. Day. It has a password. Nate looked over at the desk, tucked away in one corner of the living room. Do you have it written down on a sticky note? Maybe under the keyboard or something? No, I work in IT. I don't keep passwords lying around. It's been bugging me ever since he told us he used it. And I believe he did. He knows he's not supposed to play with it. And I could see he felt guilty. Maybe he watched you type it in a few times. Kids pick up a lot more than we give them credit for. Maureen shook her head. I never log on while the kids are at home, only after they go to school, and rarely in the evenings. She folded her arms as if warding off a chill. Do you think she was watching me? Could this be real? Marcia asked, looking pleadingly to Nate, hoping for an answer, but he didn't have one. Chapter 36 The front door to Nate's house opened, and the staff of Rainy Day Investigations piled through all of them speaking simultaneously and excitedly. Continuing a conversation started on the ride back. All of them, except Nate. He held the door open as they carried the cases of equipment from their visit to the foreman's back into the house. Dave and Emily dropped the gear in the living room and continued their conversation into the kitchen, where they grabbed bottles of water from the refrigerator. Are you going to leave these crates in my living room? Nate asked. The discussion stopped. Emily and Dave cast a quick glance toward Jennifer, who shrugged her agreement with Nate. That was the rule. Keep the equipment where it belongs and out of his living space. Can we just take a minute to hydrate? Emily asked. Mr. Frugal didn't let us run the air conditioner on the way back. My mouth feels like I gargled with sand. It would have been nice if we'd stopped for something to drink on the way back, Dave agreed. They charge $2 for a 10-cent bottle of water at those convenience stores, Nate countered. Finish your waters. They get this stuff put away. He walked past them, through the kitchen, to the office in the back of the house. Is it just me, or is he a level or two grumpier than usual? Emily asked. He's got a lot on his mind, Jennifer reminded her. I can't believe he really thinks everything we saw and heard with Danny Foreman was all a scam by a ten-year-old, Dave added. I swear, when he said Maureen could sense Nate had been dead? Would he ever admit it, even if he did feel our presence like we did? Emily asked. It's not his job to think the same way we do, Jennifer replied. He's a cop. Ex-cop, Dave said. I don't think he'll ever think of himself as anything else. I want him to be a skeptic. I want him to challenge everything we see and record and force us to look at it through his point of view. Trust me, it's easy to be fooled by a misdirection. I did a lot of it when I was a magician. What do the foremans have to gain? Emily asked. I don't know, but we just met them. They're strangers to us. He's right to be skeptical. I can't believe you're on his side, Dave said. I totally believe Danny. There's no way a kid could come up with that detailed a lie. And it's not like we haven't seen situations like this before, he reminded Jennifer. There was that woman we met in San Jose who could hear the spirit of a little girl. I never said I was on his side, she replied. I can't remember a case where we had this type of connection with a spirit, where we can verify the subject's information. If it is Maureen Everly who is communicating with Danny, there are enough of her contemporaries available to confirm what he says. You know what Nate thinks. The boy probably found a diary along with those photos and is just pretending to talk to her, Emily said. And he might be right. That's something we still need to rule out. Well, I can't believe you can compare Danny to a professional con artist. Dave insisted. Jennifer walked up to where Emily and Dave were sipping at their waters, then looked back at the equipment in the living room. Get this stuff put away, then start transcribing the interview and writing up your impressions, and get bits to correlate the sensor readings with the video. Then, find all the publicly available information on Maureen Everly and anyone who knew her. If Danny is somehow tricking us, we want to find out. Without waiting for a reply, she crossed with the kitchen toward the office. Dave and Emily watched her go. Then Emily raised an eyebrow at Dave. Rock, paper, scissors for who does the transcript? Dave nodded. They each pounded their palms three times, and then Emily showed a flat hand to Dave's bald fist. She wrapped his hand with hers, claiming her victory, then went into the living room to grab the smaller of the cases piled up there and take it upstairs. Dave sighed, then grabbed the remaining cases and trudged after her. Jennifer entered the office and found Nate sitting at his end of the partner's desk, staring at his phone. Madge was sleeping on the couch, off to the side. Jennifer gave the sleeping pooch a quick scruff behind the ears. Madge opened her eyes to see who was disturbing her midday nap, then closed them again and let out a satisfied grunt. Nate looked over at Jennifer as she sat on her side of the desk and leaned back. She was looking at him with a challenging gaze. What? he asked. You didn't say anything during the ride back. I didn't have anything to say. There's something on your mind. What is it? The bills? The car? Did the guys leave a mess in the kitchen again? Nate decided to cut off her inquiry before it became annoying. He picked up his phone and showed it to her. I get alerts when my mom uses her credit card. She saw Harmony today. Jennifer shrugged. It's only natural after Sam couldn't reach Ben that she would return to someone she's had success with in the past. Out of nowhere, Nate rose to his feet swung his arm and banged the desk with his fist. The sound shocked Jennifer, but she was more distressed by the look in his eyes. They were filled with pain and on the verge of tears. Nate had used his right arm to express his frustration, and the force of the blow created a wave of agony in his reconstructed shoulder. He wasn't supposed to be picking up anything heavier than a sandwich, let alone smashing his fist into a hardwood desk. A moment later, Dave and Emily appeared in the doorway to the office. Expressions of concern on their faces. They looked at Jennifer, who gave them a reassuring nod and silently signaled them to go back to what they were doing. After they left, Nate collapsed into his chair and looked over at Jennifer. I'm sorry, he said. That was totally inappropriate. It's okay, Jennifer told him. I'm injecting myself into your relationship with your mother, and I have no right to- No, you have been nothing but understanding, supportive, and generous with your time. I just... Nate trailed off as another wave of pain swept through his shoulder. Jennifer looked at Nate sympathetically. The only thing I want to do is find a way that you and your mother can accept each other. I know, he said. I just miss her. His response surprised Jennifer. I know you two haven't been on speaking terms in the past, but things are better now, aren't they? My parents were high school sweethearts. There was no one else, either one of them, had ever loved. And I could understand why my mother would want to hang on to that. But, Nate closed his eyes. Jennifer walked around to Nate's side of the desk, sat down on the edge, and placed her hand over his. Nate continued. It was like I lost them both. He looked up at Jennifer, wondering what her reaction to his confession would be. She nodded. I get it, she told him. How can I help? Nate shrugged with his good shoulder. Just keep being you. And have a little more patience for an old cop who has a problem expressing his emotions. Jennifer squeezed his hand. I can do that, she said. And I really think Sam can help. Let that play out. See if it doesn't change Eleanor's expectations. He won't charge her anything and won't try to scam her. Nate raised an eyebrow. That's quite a favor. We're old friends, she replied, then quickly changed the subject as she gave Nate's hand a final pat and returned to her chair. So, back to the case. You still think everything we saw today you can credit to a young boy's imagination? Nate let her dodge of his question about Sam go, then nodded and answered hers. Yes, I do. Jennifer shook her head. You did notice how excited Dave and Emily are. I know that wouldn't escape the notice of an accomplished detective like you. Nate cocked his head, silently asking her to make her point. This is the most promising case we've had since they've been working for me. An actual communicative spirit, manifesting visually and orally to probably the most reliable witness I've ever interviewed. Reliable? Nate challenged. Yes, he's a kid. He's innocent. No ulterior motives. No apparent psychoses. No reason to try to deceive us. Kids are impressionable, Nate countered. They're not reliable witnesses. They have a hard time distinguishing fantasy from reality. Where would the fantasy come from? There aren't a lot of kids' shows that feature the spirits of people who died 15 years ago. Kids pick up a lot more than we give them credit for. At that age, they are learning machines. And the father... What about him? He's all in on the paranormal stuff. The mother is on the fence. But the dad really believes that his son is talking to a ghost. Boys idolize their fathers. Nate said. He paused, thinking about his own dad, remembering that larger-than-life figure who loomed over him, clasping his giant hand over his son's shoulder, that gesture of praise that meant everything to a young boy eager for approval. Nate returned his thoughts to the case. Greg reinforces his son's delusions, gives the boy approval whenever he reports something this dead woman says or does, and shows disappointment when he doesn't. I noticed that, too. Jennifer said. But that doesn't explain how I could know so much about her life. Nate started to answer, but Jennifer cut him off. Yes, yes, I know. Maybe she hid a diary in that hole in the attic wall, too. Do you really believe that's likely? His mother said he's at the top of his class, but a bit of an introvert, an outsider. He saw the opportunity to be the center of attention for once and seized it. You see that a lot in families with multiple children. The youngest always gets most of the attention, and the older siblings sometimes act out. This doesn't seem like that, Jennifer asserted. His parents say he's a perfectly adjusted big brother. You were an only child. Your point of view on sibling relationships is more academic. Nate nodded, acknowledging her point. I've seen how divisive rivalries in families can be. This isn't the Cain and Abel situation, Jennifer protested. No, I'm not saying that but you can't know everything going on in a family by spending just a few hours with them. Jennifer sighed. Sometimes I feel like you reach for explanations just to be contrary. There really aren't too many fifth graders who know who Jerry Seinfeld is, let alone that he had a TV show. How do you explain how he could have known what we talked about during the ride there? He overheard some chatter between Dave and Emily. See, Jennifer countered. You always have an alternate explanation and discard the most direct and obvious answer. That a ghost hitched a ride with us like in the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland? Jennifer smiled, imagining Nate sitting in one of the iconic cars from the famous attraction and sliding along the final stretch of the mechanical track that pulled them past mirrors that made it look like there was a ghost sitting next to you. Yes, she said simply. If people can project their consciousness out of their bodies while they're alive, then it just makes sense that if consciousness can survive death, that part of them would have the same abilities. Nate rolled his eyes. "'I don't know how many unproven assertions you made in that sentence,' he said. "'But it certainly doesn't qualify as a more likely explanation in my book. "'I can show you some of my case notes on out-of-body experiences. "'I've had them myself. "'Maybe reading about them will stir up your own memories.' "'It had been some time since Jennifer had made a direct reference to her belief "'that during the time his heart had stopped and he was clinically dead, "'he had a near-death experience.' She had tried to connect a couple coincidental incidents in which it appeared that Nate had acquired information to help him track down the shooters. There was a logical explanation of what had happened all those months ago, but she kept on trying to convince him that he somehow left his body, and that the vivid dreams he had experienced under the influence of a cocktail of painkillers and anesthesia he was administered during his hospital stay were more than just inventions of his subconscious mind. So you think we should just write this off as just a kid with an overactive imagination and sibling rivalry? Yes, he said simply, after we send them a bill for our time. Well, we're not going to bill them without giving them an answer. Despite your doubts, I am convinced there is something going on there. We have a chance to verify communication with an actual spirit of someone who lived recently enough to be able to corroborate what Danny tells us. We need to find people who knew her. People who can give us questions and answers that can verify that Maureen is who Danny says she is. Things that wouldn't be in a diary, no matter how detailed. Have you considered this may actually be a scam that goes beyond the foreman's? Nate asked. What do you mean? Maybe they're conspiring with these people you think you can find to verify that there is a ghost in that house. If a noted parapsychologist, such as yourself, gives your stamp of approval, then they can cash in. Maybe you can get one of those reality shows. Jennifer shook her head. That's not what this family is after. They just want answers. Not their fifteen minutes. We'll see, Nate said. Emily entered the office, sat down next to Madge and rubbed her hand up and down the dog's back. Madge moaned with pleasure. Dave sent me down to see if you still have that memory card we swapped out of the camera. I thought I gave it to Dave, she said in a small panic. He says you must have it. Jennifer searched her pockets, then smiled when she found a small plastic square tucked away in one of them. Here you go, she said, handing it to Emily. Thanks, Emily said, taking the memory card. She turned to Nate. So, what if she does remember where it is? Who remembers where what is? Nate asked. Maureen and the money. Seems to me if Danny can get her to remember where she stashed it, it would answer a lot of questions and solve a lot of problems. Emily said, eyeing the stack of bills next to Nate's computer. She got up and walked out of the office. Once she was gone, Jennifer raised an eyebrow at Nate. Don't tell me that wouldn't convince you, she said. Nate started to open his mouth. And don't try to tell me that her last entry in this mythical diary was a confession of where she hid the money, she added. Nate considered, then offered a tepid, Maybe. Jennifer sighed and turned on her computer, deciding to write up her notes rather than engaging Nate any further. Nate got up from his chair, and without another word, walked into the kitchen where Dave was deciding which flavor of hot pocket he was in the mood for in front of the open freezer door. They exchanged polite nods, and Nate continued into the hallway and ducked into the downstairs bathroom. He locked the door, then collapsed against it and slid down to the floor, trying not to audibly express the utter agony he was in. He had thought the pain would ebb after the initial shock from pounding the desk, but it was getting worse, like someone had stuck a knife into his shoulder joint and was twisting it. Nate pulled the prescription bottle from his pocket and took the contents into his right hand. There were three pills left. He set the bottle on the floor, then picked up two of the pills and held them over the open bottle that dropped them back in. But instead, he popped them into his mouth and swallowed them dry. Then he eyed the last pill resting in his palm, picked it up, and tossed it to the back of his throat and swallowed that one, too. It took a moment for the medication to take effect. His breathing slowed and became less shallow, and the pain finally faded to a dull ache. Chapter 37 Liam sat in the booth of the downtown diner that was his usual lunchtime stop, staring at the half-eaten burger on his plate, nestled among the untouched french fries and that god-awful sprig of parsley that Kenny's restaurant dropped on every dish. Next to the plate was the pocket notebook he always carried with him open to the page of potential hiding spots where Maureen Everly may have hidden the duffel bag full of loot. Ten million dollars was scribbled at the top of the page and underlined heavily. Liam picked up one of the cold fries smiths plate and popped it into his mouth. He sighed and stared out at the midday crowd. He saw a man he recognized get out of his car and walk toward the barber shop. It was Marsha Foreman's husband. Liam searched his memory for his name. It was Greg, he recalled. After he had run into Marcia last weekend at the market, he had done a little snooping into the family that lived in the house that Dale and Maureen had once called home. The deputy pulled a few bills from a money clip and tossed them on the table, then made his way out of the diner and onto the street. He dodged light traffic to jaywalk across to Gary Rubin's barber shop. It was the type of establishment you would expect to find in a small rural town. There were two barbers manning three chairs backed by a mirror that ran the length of the shop. Opposite them was a row of seats, where a few other men sat, one of them completely bald, so obviously not there for a haircut. There was a conversation going on, a debate on the latest season of Survivor. "'Afternoon, Liam,' one of the barbers said. The others in the room grunted their own greetings. "'Hey, Geary. There's a bit of a wait if you want to trim.' "'I got a little time to kill,' Liam said." running a hand through his hair that didn't really seem like it needed a trim at all. Gary had just straighted the giant bib over Greg Foreman and was running a comb through the man's hair, getting a feel for the way it laid on his head. Greg looked over at the deputy. Liam pointed a finger at him. You're Mr. Foreman's husband, aren't you? Greg seemed surprised to be recognized by the deputy. Yes, I'm Greg. I'm Liam McDonald. Your wife did some work for the department a while back. Yes, she did. I hope there's nothing wrong with it, he asked jokingly. Nope. Made things a 100% easier. Though, to be honest, that wasn't a very high bar to jump over. Well, I'll let her know you're happy with her work. Actually, I just saw her on Saturday. She was running out of the market like a madwoman. Said you guys were having some psychic over to do an exorcism or something. Liam settled himself into one of the empty seats across from the barber chairs. Greg looked around. Feeling a little self-conscious as the survivor debate ceased, and everyone's attention turned to him. It wasn't anything like that, he assured them. She is a parapsychologist, not a psychic. She only investigates paranormal phenomena. She doesn't talk to spirits. Para-what? One of the regulars said from behind the newspaper he was holding in front of his face. Paranormal. It's another word for ghosts and stuff like that, Greg explained. Marsha said that your boy was talking to one, Liam said. Everyone leaned in expectantly to hear the answer. Even Gary the barber paused, wetting down Greg's hair. Greg nodded slightly. Yes, he does appear to have made contact with a spirit. Huh? The old man behind the newspaper said. Don't surprise me, none. Lots of ghosts in these parts. Bunch of 49ers still roaming the hills looking for gold. Football players? The man sitting next to him asked. No, you idiot. Prospectors. Which is your boy talking to? The old man asked. Actually, it's a woman, Greg replied. A woman? The bald man echoed back. Yes, we think she was the previous occupant of the house. Maureen Everly. Oh, you're the sucker that bought that old place, huh? The newspaper guy asked. The others chuckled. My wife and I are big DIYers, and we love Danville. Liam steered the conversation back to Maureen's ghost. Do you think that's who it really is? Greg nodded. Seems to be. Dr. Day and her crew gathered some pretty convincing evidence. Hey, Liam, the bald man shouted. Weren't you out there on the day of the robbery? Seems I remember you talking about it a time or two. Liam felt himself blush. He hadn't wanted to turn the topic back onto himself. Did you know her? Greg asked. The deputy shrugged. I'm sure I ran into her around town before she died. Would you mind if I give your name to Dr. Day? She mentioned that if we can find people who knew Maureen when she was alive, they might be able to confirm whether or not it's actually her that Danny's talking to. I'm afraid I probably wouldn't be able to help you in that regard. We didn't run in the same social circles, Liam answered with an apologetic tone. Greg sighed with disappointment. Well, if you think of anyone who might be able to help, please let us know. Will do, Liam replied. Another one of the old-timers spoke up. If your boy is really talking to Maureen Everly, you should get her to tell you where she hid the million bucks she got away with in that bank robbery. Greg smiled. She mostly entertains my son with stories about what things were like when she was alive. For him, that's all ancient history. Liam made a show of pulling his phone out of his pocket and staring at the screen. Gary, looks like I'll need to get that trim another day. Duty calls. He stood up and nodded goodbye to the barbershop crowd and left. The deputy placed a call on his phone and held it to his ear as he walked toward where he had left his car. After waiting a moment for Dale to answer his call, he said simply, It's her. Time to make our move. Thank you for listening to Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's Fiction Podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review not only this podcast, but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniac's newsletter at bedtimestories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigations Paranormal Mystery Book Series, visit rainyandday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E.com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.